strap in, this one's a special. In this feature-length episode, we talk with one of my puppetry heroes. I was going to kill him, actually. Um, <gasps> no. Yeah, I nearly killed him. Randy Feltface may be a household name, but the man behind him, Heath McIver, remains a man of mystery and is a master of the comedy stage, screen and the socials. Puppets have the ability to, I guess, disarm people. Join Heath and I now, here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. My name is Pete Davidson, and I'm especially, especially excited to be joined today by Heath McIver, known as the man underneath the mad and wonderful Randy Feltface. Heath joins us today by correspondence. Heath, thanks so much for being here, and thanks so much for joining us on Talking Sock. Thank you so much, Pete. It's wonderful to be on the podcast and I am also especially excited to be talking to you today, my good friend. That's very kind. So, Heath, why puppets? Puppets because I think for me personally they are the ultimate, they're the ultimate way to tell story with character with a degree of personal separation. And I think that puppets have the ability to, I guess, disarm people. And it's like a shortcut for me with performance. If you walk on stage, people look at you and they sum you up real quick. <clears throat> with a puppet, particularly with some with a puppet like Randy, for example, people can sort of just imprint their own life perception and perspective onto the puppet. So I think puppets are uh, they're universal. They work for all ages. They're very um, inclusive as an as an art form, I reckon. And they're silly. They're playful. Yeah, that's my thing. That's why puppets. Playful, inclusive and uh, universal. There you go. Got it down to three words or less. Nice job. I was actually watching one of your shows recently, um, Randy is Sober, in which you kind of gave a little bit of an indication as to to the stuff that you did before you got into comedy. So doing children's parties, driving Keanu Reeves around places, um, working in film and I kind of wanted to know where it started in puppetry for you because I, I, I think puppetry might have started before that, all that kind of stuff. Do you want to give us sort of an indication as to how you actually got started in puppetry? Sure. Look, to clarify the Randy stuff, like Randy and I are a lot closer now in terms of life story than we were. I, I you know, I'm sure we'll touch on this at some point, but our stories intertwine at times, but he kind of has his own backstory as well. I got started in puppetry when I was eight, oh, 17, actually, when I was cast. I was cast in a TV series called Pig's Breakfast in 1999. Oh, my God. Uh, no, 1998 <laughs> I was cast in that show. 98, wow. so 22 years ago. Philip Miller was a puppet maker on that and he was head of puppetry, puppet designer and stuff on that show. And uh, so I first met him as a ponytailed, overall paint-spattered um, no man uh, <laughs> in, a, in, yeah, in, a, in an audition room. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, I got that job at, at the age of um, 17 and that's, that's started my career really. I, I, um, it was an amazing way to learn about television. It was an amazing way to learn about puppetry. It was a suit puppet character. So I was inside the suit and I was doing a lot of really physical stuff and the lip sync was all with the kind of like the bottom lip had this little rod on it that I would bounce up and down for his mouth. And I had a, a helmet with that was attached to eye stalks. So if I move my head left or right, his eyes would, you know, move the puppet character. His name was Grob. 
and so that's how I started out. I got that job and I just got an audition. I just got, you know, recommended for the audition by a teacher of mine at the time. Yeah, that was it. It kind of, I just did that and then I was immediately in love with television and puppetry and the style of work, the speed of the work. It was exciting and I was young and impressionable. So after that, very soon after that, I think between season one and two of that, that show, I was cast in The Hobbit, the touring production of The Hobbit, not the very, very first original Hobbit, the um, the remount, um, the 1999 remount of that show. And then from there, that was when I really kind of started to explore different kinds of puppetry and I and that, that was a cast of, I don't know, it was probably 10 or 12 of us, a bit of a boys' club. There were no female puppeteers on that show, right. but on that tour at least. They were all dudes. And um, and I just watched a lot and learned a lot and I said yes to everything. I was, I was a swing, so I ended up, I ended up understudying a, a few roles and I was playing lots of different characters, dwarves and elves and all sorts of stuff. It was kind of like an apprenticeship, um, to be honest. We were on tour for like six months and then I tore the ligaments in my ankle and I left that tour. And then, look, now it's going to turn into a list of every job I've done. So we won't do that, but that's how I started <laughs> out. And then, um, yeah, and then I just got hungry for it and I wanted to learn more and more and then kind of I managed to get like the soup puppet character was my first job and then the Hobbit was Bunraku. So I learned oh, wow. a lot about Bunraku puppets. And then I went back to Pig's Breakfast for season two. And then and then I got a job on a um a show called Little Horrors, which was a glove puppet TV show. So within the first, you know, three years of my career, I'd done TV and a live and a big tour and then a, a glove puppet TV show. So I was really lucky. I kind of landed at at a I don't know, man. It's like thinking back to it when people go, How do you break into the industry? I wasn't a puppeteer before I got my first puppet job I didn't train I wasn't I've never really considered this this sounds so jerky but I didn't I didn't really want to be a puppeteer I loved puppets but it wasn't something that I was like I'm going to be a puppeteer I I genuinely got a job as a puppeteer and then I went oh this is the greatest thing ever and because I loved performing and I'd always done performing but I wasn't that excited about being on stage myself it was the perfect foil for that it's really interesting because in your first three years you got a taste of all tv and live theater and Obviously, because of COVID, now we're doing all this online stuff. I want to know how have you found, what's your preference, firstly, of TV versus live theatre and and what are the differences for you technically? Um, because particularly with Randy, but I guess in, in terms of those first three shows that you did. And then how is that now translated to what you do online? Great question. I... I love both for very different reasons. I love live performance, particularly because now I'm doing so much. I mean, the past 10 years has been dominated by comedy, really, So, uh, or even longer since I started working 15 years ago with Randy, I guess. So the live stuff is really serious theatre these days. I really just do comedy shows. So that to me is like a drug like the endorphins and the kick you get from doing a live show and the the laughter of the audience and the immediacy of being in a room with people and being able to tell a story with a puppet or convey emotion and, you know, get an instant reaction. Like Randy can do a little tilt of his head and I hear the room laugh or move. I can feel the audience. This sounds so wanky, but I can feel the audience, you know, move because I can't see them. I'm hidden the whole time on stage. Yeah, no, no, no monitor. Oh, my gosh. No, no, absolutely not. If I film something, like say that show Sober that, that you mentioned, filming filming specials, mm. Randy writes a novel I didn't have a monitor when I filmed that special because 
it can be distracting when you, for me anyway, it can be a little distracting when I've done a live show a bunch of times to have a monitor. If I do like a TV spot, I always have a monitor because like for the, say, comedy festival shows when they had, sorry, like the comedy festival, you know how they do the um, gala shows, the comedy yeah. album, comedy festival gala. So I'll have a monitor for shows like that because it's a three-minute spot and I need to eyeball the camera and know where everything is, you know, because it. it's, you know, multi-cam. But for live shows, no, I've never had a monitor because I tour and I just carry an ironing board uh, with black fabric draped over it and I go into a venue and I set it up. I can't be like, all right, guys, I need to set my camera up. I yeah. need to get, you know, like, and also it's to me the whole, like a huge part of the joy with Randy anyways that I can't see. I can just turn his head at a random point in the room and say, hello, what's your name? And I don't have any preconception or idea of who I'm talking to. He's very, um, in, he's very kind of, uh, innocent in who he picks to talk to I guess I think having a monitor people ask me that do you have cameras in the eye in the you know in the eyes or <laughs> do you set up a monitor but for me it would just ruin it I just love I love not being able to see on stage well because um, so it's, it's the audience interaction as well because you don't ha- you don't have vision and often that's a gag of yours but you you know you've got sometimes it goes wrong and and how I, I kind of there's another question there about how you manage that audience interaction when it is so randomized and when it's so kind of fresh. I mean, you know, this, and, and now online as well, I've been noticing that you've been having sort of, uh, I think the word that you use is linguistic heckler, but you use yourself as the audience in your online shows. So that's been really fun to watch, but how do you do it? Um, well, when it comes to crowd work, I don't think anything can ever go wrong for me anyway, because it's, it's real. So if you're open to the fact that a conversation might not end in a big laugh and that you might end up hitting on something that is sensitive or you might talk to someone who's aggressive or you might talk to someone who's trying to show off or you might talk to someone who's really vulnerable, if you have your ears open to however that person is going to respond and you respond, I think for me, I try to be authentic in my interactions with the audience. So I keep it really playful. And then if it goes somewhere and we hit a point of vulnerability, I'm super into that. Like most of my crowd work is, is you know, it's flippant and it's fun. But if, if someone is responding in a way that's like a bit dark or a bit sad or weird, I'll explore it and try to be like, is it okay if we talk about this? Let's, you know. So I don't think anything can go wrong. I've never had anything. Like sometimes the room will move. The only time it goes wrong is if you absolutely destroy someone like a heckler, if you really take them down and you overstep and the audience takes their side. Yeah. So if I'm to, if, if someone's being a dickhead in the audience and I like really go hard at them and then the audience is like, oh, that was a bit much, then I look like the arsehole. So, so I, try to, I try not to do that. I try to be really fun and inclusive. But to loop back to the live stuff versus the television stuff, doing stuff for TV is the opposite because you can be really precise and you can do more than one take and you right. can see, like I can see everything. I'm always looking at the monitor. Everything is built around the shot. So I will play with, you know, entrances and exits and popping up, moving around and stuff is, is that to me, the mechanics of that is so exciting and I love it so much. I love making film. I love making television mm. because you're building something shot by shot and you can see it happening Theatre and live stuff is a lot more frantic and 
energetic and in the moment. And so doing these live stream shows I found challenging and doing live Instagram live stuff and all that stuff challenging because it's a combination of the two without the satisfaction of either. And I haven't, that's the first time I've succinctly summed up what, what it is about this that isn't, that I don't quite dig. It's because you don't get an audience reaction if you're Mm. doing live stream and you don't get precision second takes. There's nothing really clean about it. I did a live stream show uh, called felt FaceTime. It was quite last minute. I spent a few weeks preparing it and creating all these bits and I pre-recorded some stuff and it was huge. Like I had a whole lot of different acts in on it and I created a whole storyline, you know, guests and all sorts of stuff. And I was like, it was, it was humming. But then as soon as we went live, my mic fucked out. So something happened with my mic in the first like 10 minutes of the show. I didn't know it was happening, but now we fixed it. It was fine. The rest of the show was fine. There was like one other audio glitch in it. Right. But that to me is like, that's that that wakes me up at three in the morning. Oh God, that was a failure. Because because if you do that live, you can hear everyone's like, your mic's not working. And you go, oh, okay, hang on. And you turn it into a joke. And if you're shooting on a set, people go, your mic's not working. But on the live stream, someone was sending me a thing in the chat going, your mic's not working. I'm not reading the chat. Oh Christ. I'm trying yeah. to do the show. So so things like that I found frustrating. But yeah, television's amazing. Live theater's amazing. The live stream stuff, I've got an idea for my next one, which I'm going to do maybe in November. I've got a really cool idea to try to to try to figure out how to do both. With the online stuff, you've got about three different screens going there on Instagram Live. And as this is a puppetry podcast, and as this is the future of how a lot of puppeteers are going to express their work to their audiences through Instagram Live, can you get me into the technicals of, you know, what you're doing to have you know, a live Randy puppet in the corner of your screen, then an interview window in the same screen lower down and then sort of the background of whatever you're doing uh, with the Instagram live stuff. Are you using a software or something to do with two different monitors or two cameras? How are you doing it? Mm, mm, Pete, you're asking me to reveal all my secrets. Oh, no. <laughs> it's really helpful no, look, though. I know. I When I started looking at Instagram live stuff, I was like, this isn't interesting enough. It's just two heads. And I get that it's important to have the two heads thing. But my my idea with it was like, okay, it's going to be, each episode is going to be 15 minutes and I need a hook. So I'm going to talk about my breakfast and I'm going to talk about my tea. If you haven't mm-hmm. seen it, for people who haven't seen it, it's a 15 minute Instagram live show where I talk to one of my favorite musicians about a song of theirs I enjoy listening to while I have my breakfast. And I start the show by talking about what tea I'm having and what breakfast I'm having, basically. And I have these graphics that come up that, like you said, show me and show the tea. In this um, pandemic, I've gotten a lot better at my Photoshop and my editing skills. So I use Photoshop and I use Premiere Pro and I built templates in Photoshop and figured out where the, in Instagram Live, you can bring in images. You can bring in photos. And I figured out where my screen goes, where my little image of me goes when an image comes in, and I built a template to put a frame around where my cam- where my camera would end up. And then I figured out that if you, that means that if you can bring in a graphic, you can bring in video. So uh-huh. then I started uh, shooting stuff and and dropping it in. So I really feel like I don't want to reveal this, but there's pre 
pre-filmed moments in the tea and breakfast, which is not hard to figure out. Like clearly Randy's not pouring the tea in the (laughs) shot where the tea gets poured. Am I answering this? I'm trying not to tell you exactly how I do it for some reason. I'm being really cagey because I'm really proud of it. Like it's a really cool, I'm really proud of the way I've set it up and the stuff, but it's basically I built templates and then I plant footage and I plant still images in there and um and it's just been a I feel like a jerk for being like weirdly secretive about it everyone should do it what am I talking about I don't have a fucking license on the internet it's just a it's a template I built a template I think it's great that you just even just what you've given us there allows us to think that it's possible for some of us and I guess you know we just want to know how how it can be possible so just the idea of knowing that you use photoshop and you use premiere is enough but um yeah and it's 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 really just about um with any of that instagram live stuff you know and also once i've done the show then i then i do like screen recordings of on my phone of the show and then i reframe that and i cut 15 seconds and then i'll put that into a template and then i'll use that as an instagram story to promote the show that i've just done Mm. so it's actually nothing about it is like mysterious or hidden it's just about actually embracing the form so it's like okay if I'm going to do a show on Instagram how can I make it look unique how can I embrace that form and how can I throw a bit of energy at it and make it clean and sort of you know if you look at my Instagram Randy if you look at Randy's Instagram feed all of the all of the um, live shows and all of like the live Instagram shows and then all of the little tiles I use to promote them all line up. So it's this idea of going, okay, if I'm going to do a show or if I'm going to do something new, if I'm going to present it on a, on a platform, how do I make that consistent and slick? And because Randy is a separate entity and I don't have any personal photos on there, I don't have to post, this is me down at the beach with Simone and Gary, like, <laughs> There's, it's just I have the, I have that degree of separation to be able to go. This is a platform to promote this creature, this thing. That's really um, cool. Yeah. So if you have a puppet character, and if you and I know a lot of puppeteers do this, absolutely. But if you if you have a specific character that you work with, if you can create, you know, I guess if you're a maker, it's different. If you're doing if you're promoting your making work, it's different. But if you do have a character, I, I recommend like if you can keep that branding consistent, it does, I hate using the term branding, but it's kind of what it is. <laughs> it is. Um, and I kind of want to, I do want to tap into the separation of yourself and Randy. And you did mention it before, you know, this this character that you created almost 15 years ago and how Randy and yourself have kind of merged a little bit more personally, but that you also have a separation from the product of Randy. So can you tell us a little bit about what's behind that decision-making for you? And, you know, people have been doing it. Sia's been doing it with her wigs and maintaining her privacy and keeping her face out of the spotlight. Is that the same reason for you? Because I guess you probably wouldn't have thought of the success of Randy when you started out with him, but you made that decision very early on. So I'm really curious as to, you know, what led you to that 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 call? Yeah, well, look, I didn't make it. Early, I didn't make that decision early enough because a very quick Google search and you'll find that I'm the guy that does Randy. That's why I've become like in the past couple of years. I did a podcast called the Comedians Comedian Podcast and kind of outed myself as the puppeteer behind Randy and started talking about myself on a podcast for the first time. Right. And then I did un, Under the Puppet quite soon after that. And this is podcast number three as me, I think. Yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, so I'm not like the Banksy of puppetry, you know, <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't um, separate myself from Randy early enough. But mm-hmm. 
I started doing Randy as a puppeteer. He was just another puppet character that I was doing. And I, Randy existed as a puppet before I started doing stand-up comedy with him. And then so as I started to develop more of the stand-up stuff and more of the comedy stuff with my own solo stuff with Randy and also with Sammy J, who he and I were writing a lot of shows together, I wanted to make Randy as separate from me as possible. So, you know, created his own website and all of that stuff a long time ago. So it was a very conscious decision because Randy, for him to have the power, I guess the word is power or the gravitas or or the believability, I can't stand up and take a bow. I don't do curtain calls. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you sit and watch a puppet for an hour and invest in that character and believe in it and then want to see the guy stand up and take a bow afterwards? For me, it's like if I'm doing a theatre show where there's a whole bunch of puppets and I'm a puppeteer and I come out and acknowledge the fact that I was the puppeteer, sure. But with Randy, the whole point is that he is the stand-up character. He's the he's the dude. Right. So um, it's only been in the past couple of years that I've really gone been more comfortable about the fact that saying, yeah, I'm the dude that does Randy because it's more fun if you buy it. Like if you believe mm. that, you know, you don't, who gives a shit about the guy that does the puppet? Do you know what I mean? Really? I know that's a terrible thing to say on a puppetry podcast, <laughs> but with that character, with the Randy as a character, he's way more important in that than whoever's crouching underneath him. So yeah. It was a conscious decision and it's one that I've sort of had to really go to, to, to defend. Like, for example, when Sammy and I made our series, Sammy J and Randy and Ricketts Lane, I don't appear anywhere in the credits. So that Sammy and I wrote that show together. I obviously puppeteered Randy. Um, we created the whole series together, but it's written by Sammy J and Randy. And Randy is the only one that appears in the credit. And Randy was the one that got nominated for the, the Actor Award for Best Comedy. In a, <laughs> no way. Best, That's wild. Best, Best performer in a comedy, I can't even remember what it was, best comedy performer or something. First puppet to get nominated for that award or whatever. But it's, it's, that is kind of, that to me is like, mwah, 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 delicious. That's, <laughs> you know, like, because it's, it's, but you can't stop people from then putting my name on IMDb or then creating a Wikipedia page or something. Yeah. People don't want to get in on the joke. People want to go, I know how it's done, always. People will, when you have a puppet on your hand, people will come up and go, how do you, oh, I can see how you're doing that, talk to you and not the puppet. So you just have your hand in it, do you? How do you do the mouth? Is it, you know, it's like just it's too just real. suspend your disbelief for a minute, just be a child, enjoy, yeah. you know. But you do epitomise for me a lot of, you know, a lot of people on the show so far have said that puppetry is egoless and I think for you, you know, the actual absolute separation of you between Randy and and the fact that you don't want to break that fourth wall with the audience at the end of every comedy show that he does. On the flip side, though, comedy is a lot about ego, if I if I do say so myself. I think, I think there's a lot of about stand-up comedy it, it, because it relates and it is often so much more personal to the, the comedian, the performer, and it's usually about their lives. How do you draw that line with Randy and you know, and you mentioned that he's been merging more with your life lately. So, you know, how has that kind of come about? Well, my writing has changed. The first show I did with Randy, his first solo show was called Randy's Postcards from Purgatory. And I created, it was a puppet show. It was like a puppet show 
with moments of, it was like a storytelling show. It was full narrative. It was a full hour. It had three acts. It had songs. It had other puppets. But it was Randy telling the story of his life up until that point or his life at that moment in time. And I created a fictional backstory for him because I didn't, there was, was 2009 I wrote this show and it was like this is the first time we're seeing him outside of the duo really, apart from, you know, I'd been doing stand-up before I met Sammy. But as I started writing more stand-up, I realised really quickly like with stand-up, and I don't know how relevant this is to puppetry but maybe it's the same thing. The main thing with stand-up is you have to do it enough before you can find your voice. And once you find your voice, then you, you can write jokes. And sometimes that people find their voice immediately and they just like appear on the scene and they're phenomenal straight away. Other times it takes a while to find people's voice. And it took me a while to find Randy's voice and write stuff that I felt excited about writing and that you kind of I have a thing where you can't really write about this isn't unique to me by any stretch but you can't really write about stuff that you don't know or you haven't experienced or you don't have some kind of perception of personal relationship with I guess so you have to start writing personally so Randy is more me now than than he was then because my writing has matured and grown and developed I guess with stand-up Oh, God, I'm already so fucking sick of talking about myself. Oh, I'm so, <laughs> don't say No, that. it's okay. It's okay. How do people do this? How do people do podcasts where they just like, this is my opinion on this and this is my opinion on this? You know, when you're just like, it's just, it's like, I'm not criticizing. I've, I can see you, by the way. Yeah. I know that this is a visual medium. I'm not criticizing the art of the podcast. And I'm not having a go at you as a podcaster. I can see your face and I want to give you a hug right now. I feel like oh, I've insulted you. No, but, not at um, all. But it's just, yeah, anyway, sorry. It's irrelevant. I'm I just think, tired of I my think voice my really. response to that is that you are part of a collective of voices. And I think what I'm trying to do with the podcast is survey Australian puppeteers. And in surveying Australian puppeteers, we create a collective voice of what it is to do the job and I I will say that I think you're at the pinnacle of that. You know, you you probably the arguably the most successful of us all in Australia. So I guess that's why I, we value your voice, and I hope that you can hear that and then can yeah can understand that, that we do want to hear your voice, Heath. That is important for puppetry, I think, and definitely important for you know for podcasting about puppetry. You know what? That's so. That is so wonderful and so lovely to hear. And I feel like I had a lot more connection and a lot more. Like I did. I don't feel like I did have a lot more connection to the puppetry community before I kind of put Randy in a suitcase and hit the road mm. for you know ten years. Because you know the first. That's really kind of you to say. And I do feel like, and I do want to be part of that community. I feel like I am part of that community. I don't feel that I am, I mean, I feel like I'm at at, the, at at a point in my career where I've paid some dues, I guess. I don't know if I'm at the pinnacle. Like I want to, I have so much more to do. But I feel like I've, I just, you learn so much from working with other puppeteers. Mm. Like all of my growth spurts in puppetry come from working intensively in a cast, you know. I mean, skills, sure, like doing performing with Randy every night for five years, like that'll hone your mm. glove puppetry skills. Sure. But playing with other puppeteers is just, I really miss that. So let's make a show. 
<laughs> that would be awesome. Um, well, I mean, I've been thinking about it. It's about time. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't know, like there's so many solo. I mean, I do work with other puppeteers, but not very often um, these days. There's so many sort of solo satellite. I mean, what do we do? We've got to start. I mean, there's, there's companies, right? Are there? Yeah. Is yeah. there a good? Is there a great company at the moment who's doing oh, some great their stuff? Puppet Society is killing it. Yeah, uh, their yeah. work is unreal. I'd say, you know, amidst that, you've got you've got the Melbourne scene of you know snuff puppets and puppet jam, and there's just there's a lot. But you know, uh, I think because the industry has taken such a hit, it's sort of hard to collaborate. But if we can find ways to collaborate with puppetry, the same way that the Americans are in what they did with Muppets Live was sort of a really interesting way of all the puppeteers from Sesame Street just taking their puppets home and using their phones with a tripod and then just made a whole series out of it. That was interesting, I think. um, But, you you know, it's about that connection. I guess to jump back into questions, though, in the same show, like in um, Randy is Sober or like in Randy Wright's novel in particular, you know, your shows are really witty, they're really funny and they're super fast-paced and they often use a lot of improv. But... Just as we've had this conversation now, I can f- I see you as a really reflective and poignant sort of performer and puppeteer in person, and you clearly are quite a deep thinker. And I'm kind of curious as to how you use darkness is the wrong word, but some of that darkness in the comedy to address those more serious issues. Well, I don't start when I'm writing a new show. It's different with every show, but usually what I do is I think about like I start a show with what I've been reading. So I read a lot and then I like I'll pull together a whole lot of different bits and pieces of what I've been absorbing, what I've been sponging. And my first drafts are really super funny. They're, they're, they are. There's the, the basis of the jokes are there and but it's really a list of things that I want to talk about. And so the last show I just did, Modus Operandi, which is the one that I cancelled, whatever it was, 190 shows or something this year, that of that show, that one, like my list was age, race, gender, fame, right. you know, there that, that's where you start. So these are the topics that I'm thinking about. These are the topics that I want to cover. And then I do, I fill that in with big chunks of topics. And then you just go back and you go over it and over and over it and, and put as many jokes in as you can and like get the laugh rate as kind of frequent as possible. Mm. And then, I've only just figured out, I think Randy Wright's novel was the first time I got the balance right with how, and it took me a while, it took me a few seasons of that show to get the balance right between poignant storytelling, messaging, the point of the show, a bit of pathos with, with enough jokes to earn the right to do that. And there are a lot of stand-ups who would go, ah, why do you even, you know, this whole, oh, you need a story, you need a narrative, you need to just tell jokes. I get that, but I'm a storyteller, I think. I like telling stories and I like to kind of, I'm a bit of a narrative. Like I can't not make a show have a narrative mm. with theatre or stand-up, really. So, yeah, I kind of start with that. I start with the story. I start with the big, chunky bits of, you know, the meaty stuff and then I go back and just layer it with jokes. And then you find out the order, you know, you do it live. That's the one thing. Like it's the only, it's really the only art form that you need to f- rehearse and practice in front of a crowd really to know if it's good or not. And so you have to do it a bunch of times and find out where the laughs are. 
and then you just have to be ruthless and edit stuff that doesn't make people laugh. But on the subject of audiences, you know, you have travelled all over the world now. How are audiences in America different from Australia or different from Edinburgh? Like, is there a very different kind of audience that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, this is a question I get asked a lot and everybody ah. gets, any touring comic gets asked this question. It's like, how, do, how are audiences different? And I don't know. The only, the only way I judge countries by audience is how conservative the country is. Right. Because you'll notice that some things like London audiences can be really conservative. New Zealand audiences can be quite conservative. But they're still like a joke's a joke. Like if it's still, mm. unless you're being, like in Australia I can be a bit crasser or hit like really specific colloquial points of humour because I know all the in-jokes. And in America I have to change my language so people understand what I'm saying. But they're just the American audiences I found were just so joyous and so just like ready, like they're there, they know what their job is. Their job is to turn up and have a good time. And unless you are a just shithouse, they are like on board. (laughs) And then if you do something they've never seen before or include them in a way that makes them feel like they're seeing something for the first time, they go nuts. I love it there. I love the audiences there. And in Australia, same thing. Like if you can, Australians are a bit more, I don't know, I'm going to shit on my own country. I don't want to do that. Comedy. <laughs> but we're talking about comedy. We should be talking about puppetry. I know. There's a I, shit about comedy. <laughs> All right, let's go back into puppetry then. I was hanging out with Philip Miller when we recorded his episode. And then again, a few months later, um, he pulls up an image on his computer and it's it's Randy. And I flipped out because had I known that, that he was one of the original people behind Randy, I probably would have been too intimidated to actually talk to him. So can you tell us Randy's origin story and how Philip fits into that story? Philip made Randy. Philip ah. made the very, the very first Randy. So in, it's either 2003 or 2004, maybe 2004, myself and Derek Rowe, who you should know, Derek Rowe wrote all the music, scored all the music for Sammy J and I's live shows. Sammy and I write all the songs and Sammy puts all the piano tracks down. Derek does all of our instrumentation and adds all, if you hear any harmonies or backing vocals on anything from um, Felt Face Time, the show I just did, through all of Forest of Dreams, through all of Sammy J and I's live shows, all the music in postcards I work with someone else, but music in Sober or whenever I've had music, that's Derek. And um, he is a really old friend of Philip's. They went to school together in Warrnambool. And Derek and Philip have known each other. They've been making music together and doing stuff for ages. And Philip had a show called Tyrannosaurus Sex, which was a puppet show. Yes. That... So I worked on that with Philip and Derek and Derek did the music live for that show, Play Guitar and Sang Live, and it was a musical, it was like a rock opera, and Philip and I would do the puppets in the booth. Derek and I just became really good mates and we started working on this idea. Derek was a, or still is a trainer, like a corporate trainer, so he does like corporate training stuff, um, education around safety and, you know, all sorts of work practices. And um, he was working with an insurance company and came up with an idea to do a puppet show to teach people about workplace bullying. It was called What's a Bully to You? It was like a musical show with puppets in it. We made a set for it. Philip built us two puppets, Spud and Clive, who, for all of the real puppet nerds out there who know who followed my career at all, Spud 
is the king in Forest of Dreams, who then went on to become the uh, bank manager in Sammy J and Randy Land and has recently appeared as God on Sammy's weekly show, The Orange Guy. Yes. And then Clive went on to become Farlow in The Forest of Dreams, um, who's like the main puppet character in that show. There were those two puppets and we started rehearsing and we realised we needed like a swing puppet. We needed a puppet that we could have as a just a random character to bounce off these other two to kind of fill in the in the gaps as we like filled the show out. Philip had already made the other two and we were like, we need another puppet. So Derek sketched Randy on a napkin basically and handed it to Philip and said, we need one more puppet. This is how much money we've got left. Philip's and we need it real quick. And Philip went into his shed when he used to live <laughs> out in <laughs> used to live out in Q. That shed, oh, my God. And he went into that shed and um, knocked Randy together out of, like, he was painted. He was pretty rough. Wow. He His rods are barbecue tongs. I don't no. think I have the original rods. Yeah, the original puppet still has the original rods on it, but they were um, they were like barbecue forks. He just cut the ends off, like, <laughs> off a couple of barbecue forks and flattened them and put holes in them. So he's... His rod, that's why his rods, that's why I developed that way of moving with him because his rods were so solid in the early days. They had no bend in them. So that's why he's so quick with his arms because yeah. that's how I learnt, learned to use him. Anyway, so Philip made Randy and then um, he was, the way, the reason he doesn't have any character apart from his like blank face was because we put a wig on him and at one point he was Beverly. He was worker, call centre <laughs> worker. And then his name was Randy in the show. He was just called Randy. Randy was the good name for him because he was like the mail delivery guy. He would walk around in the office and deliver the mail. Okay. So that, that's how Randy was born. And then Derek and I did that show for a while. It went fine. It was fun. Kira Lyons was a puppeteer in that. Bruce Patterson puppeteered in that for a little bit. And then uh, Names You Should Know if you're an Australian puppet nerd, um, both amazing puppeteers. And then that was it. Randy existed. And then I had a lot more fun with him off stage than on stage. And then Philip was doing a show called Pure Puppet Palaver uh, as part of the Fringe Festival in whatever year that was, maybe 2004 or five. And then Derek said, you should write, you should do some stand-up with Randy because he's really funny. And I was like, okay, Derek, that's a good idea. So I wrote stand-up and I did it at Pure Puppet Palaver. And I was then a stand-up comedian with a puppet. Unreal. Okay, so how many iterations yeah. of Randy have we got now? What are we up to? Well, there's the original who I absolutely destroyed. If you can find footage of Sammy Jane Randy in Bin Night, you'll see he's just right. falling apart. I had a new one made in 2010 for a live show that Sammy and I did, but he was not quite right. The reason I had the new one made is because Randy, the original one, was rotting kind of on the inside because I'd just worked him so hard for five years and I took him to Edinburgh and he kind of got like, Oh, I was doing like three shows a night with him in like caves and sweating and he stank. Oh, my God, he smelled so bad that year. <laughs> 2009 Edinburgh, he stank. So right. I didn't look after him basically is what I'm telling you. Look after your puppets, people. Yeah, we had a new one made but he was a bit not quite right. He, he, was, a bit, he was a bit like Randy's sort of strange cousin. Randy then got reborn in 2011. I worked on a, a Henson series. Uh, at the end, actually, no, that was 2010. In 2010, I worked on a show called Me and My Monsters in Sydney and I took oh. Randy there and Maria Fowler, who's an amazing fabricator from Sydney, she helped put him back together basically and then I started using the original puppet again and then it wasn't until 2014 
2013 that I had a new one made. And the new one is the one that I use now. He got recovered. So there's been three, basically. There's the original, there's one that didn't really work, and then a third one, which I've been using since 2013. And, my God, he's seven years old. He got recovered yeah. last at the start of last year. I recovered him. And he went and from... that's it. I put... Like a nylon to like a fleece, didn't he? Yeah. So originally he was like a weird felt, painted felt, and then Maria recovered him. That must have been when she recovered him in 2010 with the same fle- with that same nylon that they used for the... She was using them for the Dolmio puppets. So this <sighs> is really... Yeah, so she made the Dolmio puppets. Oh, my and, gosh, I have um, to interview her. Oh, she's phenomenal. Uh, she's made heaps of stuff for me over the years and she makes, I mean, look, yeah, she could tell you heaps of really cool stuff. She's such a cool human too. I really value Maria Fowler a lot. Yeah, she recovered him. He had that that smooth skin for years. And then when I was going to the States, I kind of wanted to, you know, make him a bit softer and... I don't know, it was just time. It was just time to make him Antron. So now he's Antron Fleece. I just got lost in the seas of the chronology of Randy. The original one got recovered and we had a new one made and they had that same soft skin. So the the series that I that Sammy and I made, Sammy Jane, Randy and Ricketts Lane, that TV show, he's got that smooth nylon-y kind of skin. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until last year that he went Antron. I love him like this. I think he's so much nicer. He's just He's just a friendlier looking guy. So I've got two more questions. But the reason, oh yes, sorry. The reasons, the reason you saw Randy on Philip's computer, we was because Philip just recently scanned him for me and made a three D model because I'm getting two new Randys made Ooh. as we speak. But we had a problem with the Antron. It it came over from the factory and we got it dyed, and then Maria worked on the puppets and then moved the puppets to a different part of her studio where the light was different and we realised there was a fault in the Antron. Uh, it's got a stripe in it. So we're now waiting for some more fleece to come from the States to recover them. But then I'll have three of them, which is amazing because I can leave one in America and I travel with him in hand luggage and, and touch wood, he's always been there when I've needed him. I used to check him in. I only just started carrying him on hand luggage this, this last year. Um, but I've never lost him so far, but it, you know, it's, you kind of need a bit of insurance. I want to ask you, cause you just mentioned before, like taking care of the puppet. And actually when you do use a puppet like Randy so much, one, what is that relationship with that puppet like after so many years? And two, how do you take care of Randy? What do you use? Great questions. Um, my relationship with him, I'm obviously very fond of him, but he is just, I came up with people like Philip and I learned from people who um, have like a real <laughs> affection for puppets and a real love for puppets and, and a kind of an affinity with them, but also I understand the mechanics enough of them and the tool-like nature of them. I remember Philip telling me this story. It was at, I think it was a Unima convention or something or a puppetry convention where Frank Oz was using Cookie on stage. Oh, no, he was using Grover. He was using Grover on stage in front of all these people and like, talking to like a room full of puppeteers and puppet nerds and as Grover on the mic at a lectern basically. 
And then um, after he finished, he, like, grabbed, grabbed Grover by the neck, took him off and, like, threw him to the side into a suitcase, like, threw, <laughs> just, like, threw him. And the whole audience went, <gasps> yeah. and he's like, but he was like, it's just a tool. It's just a tool, people. When he's on mm. my hand, he's Grover. When he's not, it's, and and that was like, I remember that going, yeah, that's kind of how I, I mean, that's how I see Randy. I take him off and I throw him on the couch or he, he goes back into the suitcase or I'm pretty disrespectful of Randy, to be honest. He gets knocked around. He travels all over the place. I air him out. He gets a bit of sun. I don't let sun directly on his eyes unless I'm in a doing a shot where he needs to be in direct sunlight. He doesn't get in the sun very much at all, to be honest. I've got a little stand for him. I put him on a stand if I need to. But mostly he's in a suitcase and he tours with me and then I get him out and I do the gig and he goes back in the suitcase. If he's super sweaty... I'll sort of turn him inside out. His head used to come off, but I've had it stitched on now because it was annoying me. His rods, I never change his rods unless they break. He's just, he's a really, he's a workhorse of a puppet. He's not, there's nothing about him that is designed to be fragile. I've got spare eyes if I need them, but I, do, I don't. Um, I clean his eyes with a bit of alcohol wipe and stuff. Mm. I might spray him. He's got really, his fur, this, this Antron is really easy to fluff up and clean. He doesn't have his own room. He doesn't sleep in a humidity crib. <laughs> he's just a, he's a little dude that, that bounces around. I've got a lot of clothes for him, a lot of clothes. He's got a massive, he's got more clothes than I do, I think. <laughs> and what do you do? Do you buy like a size two child's wardrobe or how do you get the clothes done? He, he's a size six kids. Op shops are good because you sometimes find some really weird things. Someone recently just gave me three awesome jumpsuits, one of which I wore on felt FaceTime. I've got another one just sitting there. And then someone gave me, um, the same person gave me a Ghostbusters, original Ghostbusters jumpsuit, like a kid's Ghostbusters jumpsuit. Nice. So, so I'm going to wear that on Halloween for breakfast songs. Yeah, I don't know. That's 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 it. He's, he's a cool little guy. And I've got heaps of other puppets, but they're all in like my shipping container or my, I've got like a big road case with a whole bunch of other puppets, but Randy's really the only one that gets to see the light of day. Yeah. Um, and with that breakfast songs work that you've been doing, you've been interviewing your favorite musicians in the morning. And before that you're doing felt based time, like, you know, those projects were really cool. And I kind of want to know, you know, why choose your favorite musicians? Was that just because of the routine that you got into at breakfast? Um, I missed live music and I missed the music community and I love music and I wanted to figure out a way to, to keep myself sane. Breakfast songs, I came up, I was watching a live stream and I was like, this could be, I could be doing something with this. I could be doing an Instagram live show. Why aren't I doing an Instagram live show? What's some, what's a different angle? And, um, I just love music so much. And I was like, I could get some musicians and originally I just started it as an idea to keep myself from going a bit crazy in isolation. And I've just finished, as this morning was episode 30, uh, 31, so I did six weeks of it and took a week off. I'm planning on doing another six weeks. And it's actually been really great. There's been a couple of mornings where I'm like, I don't really want to do this. And then as soon as the musician starts playing the song, I'm like, this is the best idea I've ever had in my life. So I'm not making any money off it. It's costing me money. I have to, like, you know, pay a graphic designer and I've got someone helping me book it and I pay them. And so at the moment it's it's just an expense, but it's um I'm gonna go for some tea sponsorship. Hopefully, um, maybe by the time this goes to air, I will have secured some tea sponsorships. I don't know, man. It's just fun. It's fun. It's that thing about exactly what I was saying. It's like there's a platform here. How can I use it? And puppetry is a great way to communicate things. And I think 
No one has mentioned, not one person, not one of the musicians has said anything about Randy being a puppet. None of them have been weird about it. These are musicians that I've never met before or spoken to. A lot of them I have, but a lot of them I haven't. And he's just disarming. He's just like a real dude, you know. So cool. We're going to go to break. So you are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Heath MacGyver. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Heath in just a moment. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. Head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Heath MacGyver. We've just been talking about the pandemic and what it's been like for you, Heath. You know, you've, you've just mentioned earlier in the, in the previous half about how many shows you had cancelled. And I'm just really curious to see how it has been for you and how you've began to reframe, you know, your work with things like Breakfast Songs and uh, Felt Based Time. And so do you kind of want to give us a little bit more insight as to how you've been managing in the pandemic? Yeah, well, I actually, I was thinking about this over the weekend. I was walking along a country lane in the tiny town that I've been staying in for almost seven months, contemplating the fact that I've been touring for so long and have never had this amount of time doing sort of not much in the one place. Like I'm cooking from the one stove, I'm sleeping in the same bed every night. I haven't had that for ages. Wow. So it was, yeah, so I'm sort of thinking about that and looking back and going, oh, my God, it's been seven months. What have I done? Have I actually done anything and if and if it was different if someone had have come to me at the start and said okay you've got seven months off touring what projects do you want to achieve I wonder what I would have said I wonder what I would have done and I think as a puppeteer I have done some live shows I've done it's all been Randy actually that's not true I've done other puppetry as well but um but with Randy it's all been kind of you know, the word pivoting is thrown around a lot, but it has been trying to figure out how to do what I do with Randy on different platforms. But, yeah, I've, I feel like I've done some stuff. Doing live stand-up doesn't really work. It doesn't work on live streams. I've done a few and I don't really enjoy it. Yeah, it's kind of been about trying to backfill that that time off with interesting projects. But I'm lucky I've been working with AIM, Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience, a company out of Sydney, they do mentoring for Indigenous kids and they work in six countries and they do all sorts of amazing programs and really cool stuff. I've been working with them for a couple of years as a puppeteer. They have puppets that they um, that Vanessa Alice made those puppets and I've been puppeteering with um, uh, Megan Cameron, incredible puppeteer. You should talk to Megan. Do you know Tex, Megan Cameron? She's a, she's an amazing puppeteer um, based in Melbourne, studied in Prague, lived in Prague for a while. She's She goes back to very early polyglot puppet days and um, and she's done lots of TV stuff. Horace and Tina, I think she was on Horace and Tina. I think she might have done Farscape, to be honest. Possibly like Babe, I think she was on Babe maybe. Lots of filmy things. Yeah, she's, she's an awesome puppeteer. 
Maybe Where the Wild Things Are, I think, as well. Yes, I'm pretty sure she was on Where the... Anyway, now I'm just giving you Megan Cameron's CV. She's awesome. So we've been doing some <laughs> puppetry together over the, over the internet and um, so that's been really cool. I just before, like just as everything was locking down, I flew to Perth and shot a commercial with this puppet that I do for an insurance company called HIF Insurance. They're based in, well, I think they're a Western Australian. They are, they're Western Australian. So I've been over there doing some stuff with them. I've been doing that character for a couple of years, I think now as well. And that's a really cool, that's a really cool thing. So I've been really lucky. I've been super lucky. I just don't know if I've done enough. I feel like I've, I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, if this is going to go, let's say there's three more months left of this year, I'm definitely not going to be able to do my job properly the way properly, quote, unquote, the way I did it before for the next three months. So what really cool projects can I create in this time and how can I make them happen? So that's where my head's at at the moment. It's probably going to be a lot of writing, I think. Wow. The way I kind of think about the lockdown in Melbourne, it's like the first the first third of it for me was comprehending it. The second third was adjusting to it and sort of the last third of it has been managing and actually being productive in it. So I, I don't know. Mm. I, I just, yeah, I don't think we can be too hard on ourselves about what level of productivity we have or don't have. I just... You know, we never knew. We never knew how much time. I know. I yeah. I, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. That I think I um. It's very easy to go. Oh, it's been seven months. You could have written three novels. I'm not. I'm not sort of doing that to myself. But it's like, okay, what should I? What can I celebrate? And what can I? What can I build on? What can I do next? Yeah. And yeah, I guess. I mean, it's probably shown me that I needed to stop. For a minute, but I really didn't want to. Like I had such, I was like, had really cool momentum happening. So it's one of those things where you just, um, yeah, you kind of just have to roll with it, I guess. Everybody's in the same boat. I'm safe. I'm well. I'm in an amazing place. I'm super grateful for how lucky we've been in this country particularly. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah, it's a wild old time. What a time to be alive. Hey, Heath, it's mm. time for our segment called The Geek Out, in which my guest and I mention uh, something that's been getting us through this time of social isolation. And so my geek out for this week, I just started an online course with this amazing puppet builder uh, and marionette artist from Iceland called, and I'm going to get it wrong, Bernd Agrognik. Uh, and he has he's helped me start to get into marionette building and carving with wood. And so I've become this like mad geek about wood believe it or not, and different kinds of trees and different kinds of birch and pine and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I've just been loving, one, having an online community of puppeteers who are all starting out in a, in a new form. And I love the idea also of just being in someone else's studio. I think that's what I've really missed in 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 this last seven months. Of, you know, I've, I've walked into Philip Miller's studio in his garage and it's just like, oh, the potential of so many different projects. Uh, mm. And then, you know, looking at having a look and an insight into this beautiful uh, man's amazing workshop. So, yeah, it's been so nice to be able to jump into some learning again and feel like I'm actually being productive. But, Heath, what have you been getting up to in, in lockdown? Firstly, that's so cool. Good on you, marionette making. That's really awesome. Look, uh, we've got options. I have gigged out on several things. Probably the coolest is I bought a telescope. Um, I don't know if that's... Uh, I mean, it's very geeky. I've never been, I mean, where I am out here in the country, there's there's just an abundance of stars if it's a clear night. So I have been looking at planets through a telescope and losing my mind. When I got it, I thought, okay, I'm going to look in this and I'm going to see like purple Hubble level nebula <laughs> and space clouds 
but you just have to go, okay, this is just, there's just going to be fuzzy dots, but you're going to be able to see them a bit better. And then I saw the ring around Saturn and my brain melted. Like it's so, it's a little circle with a really clear ring around it. And I'd never seen that before. Anybody who's looked through a telescope and seen that before is just going, yeah, it's a thing, Heath, whatever. But I, <laughs> it, yeah, it changed the way my brain works. So I've been getting into stars. I've, I got, I've got um, stargazing guides for the Southern Hemisphere and I've got a, an astronomy encyclopedia now. I've been, you know, traipsing my little telescope out there in the backyard in, in the night and looking at the moon and the stars and figuring out constellations. And, yeah, I've been kind of geeking out on that. Oh, it's so interesting because my housemates and I have also been getting just stuck into every single space documentary that Netflix can offer. And mm. there was that super weird drama with Hilary Swank in it that is just not real uh, called Away, but it's very good. And then there's also like there's that year in space about the two twins, uh, one who stayed on Earth and one winner who went up to the International Space Station for a year and, you know, all these chromosomes and genes changed in his body and he stretched out over time. Then he came back and gravity just stacked him back on top of himself. And yeah, I've just, it's been so interesting. And I wonder if it's got something to do with how limited our space is here that we have to think, you know, out. And I'm I'm using hand gestures and that's really stupid on a podcast, but uh, (sighs) you know, like I just, I think it's really interesting that a lot of people have been getting really stuck into space lately. And it has to, it has to be about us being confined somehow to think about. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I think that the sale, like when I, when I said I bought a telescope, I, I wasn't surprised that you're also getting into space because apparently the telescope sales went through the roof during the pandemic, literally. Well, but I think, wow. um, yeah, there's been a lot of people kind of going, well, what do I do? If I can't go out, I have to entertain myself. So I'm looking up at the stars or going from spending more time in nature and I don't know. I I would love to think that we're kind of learning something about ourselves. I hope we are. I hope a lot of people are. I hope I am. And it's not just like a green light to go back to the level of chaos that we were at before this because I feel like we yeah. were at like a real tipping point. Mm. Obviously, I mean, this is this is what happens when you just are global virus of humans just all over the place so yeah anyway let's not get into that but I think um I feel like looking at the stars is a really meditative kind of calming thing but it also is it, it it shows you just how insignificant you are and how small we are and gives you some kind of perspective on the fact that we're just hurtling through space on this tiny rock it's amazing there's definitely a puppet show there for sure Okay, so yeah. I need to now go back to Sammy J because obviously that's a huge collaboration that's been a huge part of your career and, and people will hate me if I don't ask you about it and I'm very interested in it. I wanted to ask you about those years with Sammy J uh, and and the, the duo that you were. And you, I mean, I think that was the first time I saw you was, you know, on Good Newsweek, I think it was back in 2010, doing, a, you know, a segment with him on the show and it was just such joy and I had never seen a puppet and a human interact in that way and then you know, Avenue Q kind of hit Australia and we started to see that. But um, your process with Sammy J is what I'm really interested in. Like I wanted to get back to things like Ricketts Lane and those skits and just how did like, what was a day in the life in a rehearsal room on those sorts of things? 
Wow. Um, firstly, there's a lot of past tense being thrown around here, but Sammy and I are still very much, I still consider us to be a, a duo in some respects. Like we, I was on his radio show this morning and I'm filming a sketch with him this week. So we still do Yay. talk a lot and we still do make stuff. So, you know, there's a, there's a tendency for people to think that, or there's often, there's a misconception that Randy didn't exist before Sammy Jane Randy and that Neither of us did, and then we broke up at some point. But right, um, we kind of we always had solo careers, and we started collaborating together. We started collaborating in two thousand six. I was doing a show. I've told this story a bunch of times. I'll do the shortened version. I was on a comedy bill. He was on the same bill, and we through a series of really interesting events over the course of a few months, we ended up on a couple of lineups together, and then decided to meet up and see if we could write something because he had a season coming up at the Butterfly Club in in South Melbourne before it moved into the city. He was doing a show there and he hadn't written anything for it yet and um, we decided to get together and maybe try to write some sketches and then we just immediately clicked, like immediately clicked. It was just funny from the second we started working together. Our, our comedic sensibilities collided perfectly. A lot of the same early comedy influences, the influences that weren't the same complemented each other. The chemistry comedically and, you know, it was just so strong and so... We started working together and writing and we started writing this show. We did like a weekly show at the Butterfly Club. It was like a live, late night, irreverent kind of political sketch, stupid show that we did every every week. It was supposed to run for four weeks and I think we ended up doing 10 weeks or something because it just it got a bit cult status-y and um, we did lots of stupid stuff, sketches and songs and silly stuff with Sammy and Randy. And then that was that. We just, we were doing it. We took it to Adelaide Fringe in 2007, I guess, must have been. And then I took off on the road with walking with dinosaurs and I did an Australian tour. Yeah, because that year in Adelaide, yeah, so it must have been six, seven. But, yeah, anyway, I took off on the road with dinosaurs. Sammy started coming up with this idea for a show called Sammy J in the Forest of Dreams and he wanted to have puppets in it, and he called me for puppet advice. He said, I want to do this thing where I have, like, puppets attached to brooms. Can I operate puppets with my feet? And I was <laughs> like, well, I could just be in it, you know. And he was like, oh, yeah, you're a puppeteer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had this weird conversation, and then I left Dinosaurs in the States. I did the first three months of the U.S. tour and then went, i got to get out of here and came back to Australia, and Sammy and I started writing Forest of Dreams. So that was, and then we did that. So I think the collaboration just just clicked in immediately and then we were pretty inseparable comedically. We kept writing our own shows. We did Forest of Dreams in 2008 and then in 2009 we did solo shows. 2010 we came back together and did Ricketts Lane, the live show, and then we kind of kept doing our own solo shows along the whole way. We've always had like an open marriage when it comes to comedy. That's kind of our, he's my comedy <laughs> husband, but we have an open marriage. That's great. That's kind of how we say. Yeah, so that's how it started. Is that, does that answer that question? Yeah, I guess it does. I guess it, this, the content, you know, it just, it's so, it is, it's it's just hilarious. And I wonder what, what how frenetic or filled with energy those days um, writing the show must have been or might oh, have been. Oh, the rehearsal room. Yes, yeah. sorry, that was the question. We're both real sticklers for structure. So, we write, so if we're writing a show, we spend a lot of time figuring out the plot, where it's going to go, then we break it down into three acts and then we break those acts down into scenes and then we break scenes down into beats and then we start improvising. And when wow. we write, 
So we have the structure, we have like the, you know, the scaffolding and then we just improvise dialogue until we find the funniest thing. And you can get stuck writing something for ages to try to come up with the funniest thing, but we've learned over the years you just put it, just put anything down. If you get stuck, just write something and then come back. You can always add jokes, always. So that's how we write and it's really fun particularly if we're writing songs like when we did that show good news world which was the good news week spin-off we were writing sketches and songs every week we were writing a song a week and a couple of sketches a week and then we were writing our own sketches as well not duo stuff solo stuff as well for that show so that early days of doing the butterfly club shows of doing high amounts of turnover every week kind of set us up to to do that and when we write we don't write randy as a puppet really like unless there's a really specific puppet joke we want to put in we just write randy as a human i always write randy as a human and then we figure it out later so he just you just write him doing whatever i think that's an important thing with puppets you just write them like they can do everything a person can that's really interesting though, because you, when you bring into like things like randy sucking on sammy's nipple or like jump bouncing on a fake trampoline under you know behind the the playboard like that obviously is such a huge gag so at, at some points you're flipping in between that magic of whatever the puppet's able to do. Absolutely. But you, 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 you write, like, I mean, I write him as a human and then, and, and then you layer stuff like that in. The trampoline, right. that was just an impro- improvisation to get me out of a moment that I've done a few times where he jumps on a, tra- a trampoline for fun. That probably came from just doing glove puppetry on set and like bouncing through shot and, you know, they're little puppet jokes. But the nipple thing, I would probably, you know, you could do that with humans. Um, <laughs> you really could, you know. Sure. It's like just a stupid, creepy gag. And that, again, that would have just, that was absolutely just an improvised moment that stays in there. So a lot <laughs> of that stuff, like Sammy squashing Randy's head, the first time he did that was definitely just an improvised moment a lot of that happens you get these really tight solid structures and then you put it on stage and then you start to have fun with it that's kind of and then you've done like 50 shows of the one show and by the end it's just this completely different beast that's wild i yeah i'm so interested by just that process of writing and i guess that's kind of where i'm at with my own sort of stuff and uh, i keep mentioning it in every show i need to actually go and write one of those um and i guess heath what i wanted to ask you next is just and it's it's as puppeteers, we know how physical puppetry is, but I don't, like when I was playing with Princeton on N Avenue Q, I got breaks in my show. Like I got to have my arm up for, you know, a couple of songs and then I got to come off stage and put my arm down. You do a, a live show for an hour plus and you, like Randy doesn't come down once. So I want to yeah. know how you maintain that physicality. And I guess you've been doing it now since you were like 18, but it is, it looks so physically exhausting and I can't, and there's so much physical comedy from Randy in those moments as well. You become super quick and flipping him around. And I just, I'm so interested to know what do you do for your, how are your shoulders feeling? How do you do? My shoulders are, my shoulders are fine. My knees are fine. Like I'm on my haunches or my knees. Like I don't sit on anything. I don't use a wheelie. I don't use a cushion or anything. I just crouch and I duck walk a lot and sort of pivot on my haunches that's how I that's my most comfortable operating position because I think I started with the hobbit was all duck walking and then I think the little horrors that show the sets were built high but they were a duck walking height they weren't at 
at full standing height. So I think all of my, like the first few years of my puppetry, it was all very physical and that was because I started with suit puppetry. So I was like, this is what it is. And I just got really into that. So also when you're performing on stage with another human, I want to be able to be as dynamic next to Sammy. Sammy can run out in the audience. I've got to be able to be dynamic. I don't just want to be sitting there on the one spot. So I just developed a performance technique that's, that's pretty... I don't know, frenetic and, and moving around. And also puppets are way funnier when they move around. So it's just sort of I developed that, that way of doing stuff where I, on my haunches rather than standing up because, you know, like Muppeteers and stuff, they're, all, they're, they're standing or, or they're, you know, they're intertwined around each other on mm-hmm. sort of rollies and stuff. But how do I do it for 90 minutes? It's just, I don't know, once I'm in the show, I'm in the show. I don't really think about it. Sometimes like at the beginning of a show, I might get a burning forearm, like if I haven't warmed up properly, like if you start talking straight away, I'm like, oh, crap, you know, like this is going to take a minute to warm up. And I've had back problems, my lower back, um, I've had problems with that. So if I don't have, this is going to sound sort of wanky, but if I if I lose my core strength, well, it's not wanky, it's just a bit self-indulgent. If I lose my core strength, like I, I can't, my back goes out a bit. Yeah, it's a physical performance job. It's like... For me, it's physical. Like I look at it as physical performance. I don't. I think about. I think about puppetry in terms of like dance or a skill that is. It's not really like circus, so it's not really like gymnastics or. It's just physical. To me, I'd see it as physical theatre. That's how I approach it. And stuff. When we filmed Ricketts Lane, the series, it was all on location. There was no trenches. There was no raising of cameras. There was like, you know, wow. there'd be a couch in front of me or we'd be I'd be coming up through a table but that show I was in more crazy positions and did like you'll see there's long tracking shots where I walk through mm-hmm. frames through a house I'm just duck walking and trying to watch monitors on different sides of the room and stay under the camera and we tried to do we did everything except one shot there's one shot they painted me out for a shot where he's sitting at a table everything else was all in camera it was all just shot so that to me is exciting. Like I love thinking about that. How can I, how can we get him to look okay and move through this world? It's more of an attitude then about this is like relishing the challenge of that rather than thinking about, oh, that's really going to hurt. I think that's kind of answered the question for me there is just, you know, how you do it is it's a mental thing more than a, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think about it as being painful. It's not painful. I, I mean, sometimes I'll stand up at the end of it, it, being on stage for 60 or 90 minutes and I'll be like, oof, my leg's a bit sore from that <laughs> position. But also when you're doing it, this is the other thing, when you're doing the show every night for months, you know what it's like when you're doing a theatre run, you just, you just sort of just do it. Mm, that's so true. Yeah. And on the subject of monitors, flipped, non-flipped, there's a huge sort of, uh, divide about uh, handsome puppeteers who obviously don't use a flipped monitor and then those who do, where are you on that? Either. Whatever's there. I prefer flipped. If I can have a reverse scan monitor, I will use a reverse scan monitor because that's natural. That that to me makes more sense. You can f- mm. I can find the eye line quicker with a reverse scan monitor. But if there's it so often happens when you turn up to set or you turn up to do a shoot and you ask ahead or you're doing a spot on a TV show or something and they're like, oh, well, we don't know how to flip it and then you're talking to the control room. If you, like, rely exclusively on having to have it flipped, I know puppeteers who I've worked with who are like, oh, shit, okay, so you have to set up a mirror across the room 
or like turn the monitor upside down and try to figure out a way to feed it vertically flipped through the camera and all sorts of stuff. So I think I just did enough of both. I've done enough of both to be kind of ampy monitor risk. <laughs> I'm going to coin that word for know. you right there. That's your yeah, new word. Yeah, I don't. And that's not, I'm not trying to sound weirdly, like this isn't like a cocky thing. Like I completely understand that it's a real head fuck if you don't, if you are used to operating, looking at the monitor one way and then you have it the other way, it really messes with your head. I completely get that. So I'm not trying to sound like, oh, I can do it both ways. I just mean it. that's, for me, it's just, that's how it's worked. It takes you a second to adapt to either. And the worst is, the worst is when you have one reverse monitor and then, someone else is using a straight scan and then you move into a position where you can only see the straight scan and then you're like, ah, shit, which way am I? You know, but anyway. What do you I'm think about off. Randy as as a character now? Um, you know, over this time you've sort of developed, Randy has slowly become sort of more like you and your writing, but do you think the character has changed? And how did you approach yeah. it? He mellowed. He's mellowed. He was angry. He was very angry. But he's just changed with me. Like I've mellowed as I've gotten older and he's mellowed as well. And he's a lot more, my crowd work is a lot more, he's less combative. I think at the beginning Randy would just destroy people, hecklers and stuff if anyone mm. yelled stuff out. My attitude to that has changed quite a lot. I kind of try to be inclusive until someone is too annoying and then I'll scream at them. But he's just a bit mellower and probably more thoughtful and my I'm just trying to write better he's just a little idiot is there room for other puppets amongst Randy's life like Randy is a full-time gig so you know you've mentioned that you've done a couple of gigs here and there with different puppets that you've been working with I'd love to know who they are and 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 you know if there's other ways that we can see your puppetry and and those mentions that you've had earlier are really great but you know is is there room for other puppets in in amongst the life of Randy Yeah totally always if there's a if there's a good gig absolutely you know if there's a puppet show happening or a, or a film or a TV show I will always absolutely audition I probably got kind of taken off the list a little bit there because Randy became so consuming I think I feel maybe I'm out of the mix a little bit with the bigger gigs because I kind of have a I've had to put so much energy into performing with Randy but I any excuse to put on a puppet absolutely if someone called me and said hey I've got this puppet do you want to do this thing I'd be like yes immediately always because it's just that's what I love doing and new puppets are awesome new characters are so exciting I love it so there's always room Randy Randy's always going to be there I was going to kill him actually <gasps> um no. yeah I nearly killed him yeah yeah the plan was with Rickett Slane the plan was to do three seasons and a movie and then during the filming of the movie he was going to die and then after the movie came out then we would release the making of of the movie that showed oh. his death on set I think he was going to get hit by a tram. That was the plan originally <laughs> at, down near Fed Square. But, yeah, I was going to kill him and then just go, okay, well, because I had this obsession with the fact that puppets always outlive their puppeteers. Yes. There are a few puppets I know who were buried with their puppeteers. But, I mean, it's a nice way to control your legacy, right? Sure. Randy's going to end up in a glass case in somewhere or I kill him before I die. The, the viewers, the listeners, the listeners can't see your face, but I just saw your little eyebrows furrow at the thought of me 
killing him. Oh, because yeah, I enjoy I, him I, so I, much. I guess that's, it's like, you know, hearing one of your childhood, it has me street characters going. It's terrifying. I know, but there's, don't you think there's something really beautiful in it as well that you could Poetic, rather sure. than just retire him or just I die, he just dies at the peak of his career. That would be the way to do it, to like, because, you know, I'm trying really hard to make it in the States and I've got, you know, TV ideas and all sorts of stuff. Just get him to where he's just like really peaking and then just kill him. What do you reckon? Look. Who's with me? Oh, I don't know. There's a God complex there of the puppeteer and the creator of this character that I absolutely understand. There's also something, would you ever allow Randy to go on without you? God complex. That's an interesting way to look at it. I wonder if it's a God complex. Playing I God, see it more you know. as like, well, maybe. I see it more as like a Kaufman-esque kind of creatively. That's really interesting to me. Yeah. It, it, creatively it's like that is rarely done. The idea of Randy going on without me, I don't know what that would be because he's not just saying words that other people have written. He's not a, I mean, I guess with Jim and Kermit, so much of Kermit was Jim, you know, but he was also doing very Kermity lines and he wasn't writing everything. Jim wasn't writing all of that dialogue. So you can, you've got enough people who understand and, and help drive that legacy of what would Kermit say in this situation? How would he behave? He's got like a, I assume anyway, there's enough people around that have an investment in how that character speaks, that character's voice. With Randy, it's so personal. I think it would be weird. If yeah. he was a character in a TV show, maybe. Like if it was just if someone could just do my voice and just keep, you know, well, here comes Randy, you know, maybe. If that money was going to my non-existent wife and children, sure. But no, nah, I, mm. I, I think we have to kill him, folks. You heard it here first. So what is, like you, you have just mentioned about America and what you're trying to do over there and what is next for Randy come the end of lockdown and what does that mean for Heath? And you mentioned earlier about like, you feel like you're not at the pinnacle yet. So what is the pinnacle? There's three questions in one, but there you go. Go for it. Well, they're all kind of intertwined because I want to, okay, I can tell you what my plans for this year were. I was going to take this current show that I'd written, which I can't really do anymore because it feels like no longer relevant in the new world, but I was going to tour that in around Australia, go to Edinburgh, do Montreal, and then do a big tour of the States and some more shows in London and a couple of European shows. So there was like a plan there and I was pitching a show in the States to try to get it. I really want to make a TV show and I don't feel like I can make it in Australia, unfortunately. So I think the States is the, is the place for me to go to make that, to make a TV show. It's a shame, but that's, that's just the, the reality of it. There's one half an hour slot on a Wednesday night on the ABC and they don't really want to take risks. That's kind of, the reality and this is coming from someone who's lucky enough to have made a show on the abc so i don't want to sound like there's no hope because there's so many different platforms and you can make shows absolutely but for me i'm like okay if i really want to make it i kind of have to make it and by when i say make it i don't mean like become famous i mean make the show um because the idea of making it or breaking through or whatever it's just for me it's just projects and if i have to go somewhere to make that project because that has the infrastructure for that project to be made. That's a no brainer for me. You just do it. You just get on a plane and you figure out a way to do it. I think 
<clears throat> I know that might be a cocky kind of privileged attitude, but I think if you believe in your idea enough and you can just drive yourself enough and be around the people and keep working to the point where you can, you know, just do it. You just have to just do it. Anyway, so, yeah, I want to go to America and do that basically. And then after I make the TV show, I want to just do more touring in the States and do another comedy special, you know, the kind of Netflix route. And then maybe we'll just see where that ends up. It's just one project at a time. I mean, I've got plans. I've got all sorts of projects happening, doing a lot of writing. There's a couple of books that Randy has mentioned on stage that need to be written and, you know, more shows with Sammy J, more puppet gigs. If someone called me today and said, we're shooting this amazing TV series or film that's got puppets in it, I would put Randy in a suitcase and I would jump on that as well. You know, like it's all, it's just, I just want to keep working. That sounds incredibly exciting. I'm going to give you a chance to talk about Australia and and the industry. You've mentioned that, you know, a show company made here in Australia, you think. So you're someone who has had real success in puppetry and you're Australian. And so for us young, ambitious Aussie puppeteers and comedians about to start slogging away at that journey, do you have any advice of how to navigate the Australian TV landscape industry, puppetry industry? And it's really easy to say that luck got you there, but what else do you think helped you make it? I mean, timing was important, but also, you know, Sammy and I made a TV show and we developed it for five years before it got made. And, you know, we pitched it a bunch of times to different department heads and rotating department heads at the ABC. We had to prove, you know, we spent a lot of years proving that Randy works on television, that people could trust him as a character, trying to break down getting him on panel shows and then... It was a bit of like it's hard, it's hard to until people see it they don't know if it works. So particularly with television, that's the thing people have to see it. That's why they keep making the same show because they've seen it and they know it works. So they just want to keep making the same show. Wow. So with yeah. our show, Ricketts Lane, the stage show, it was called Ricketts Lane, a live sitcom. It was called like a blatant sitcom pitch. Was the original name subline for that show so we did that and then we had to prove that you could put them in different places so the follow-up to Ricketts Lane the live show was this show we did bin night where they were just in one situation for the hour everything was we had a five-year plan and and at the end of that five-year plan it was we get to make our tv show and we worked our asses off we wrote scripts we wrote pitch documents when we got to write the scripts, we were, we worked really hard on them. And this is not new. This is what people do when they make TV shows. Everyone works really hard on it to make it happen. But that journey started five years before that. And then I was, when I say I was lucky, I was lucky that I got a start in television. So I kind of knew where I wanted to end up. As far as advice goes, I don't know. It's changing. The landscape is changing all the time. I think if you are a puppeteer, I kind of have done lots of different styles of puppetry, but I sort of ended up specialising in in glove puppetry just because of that's what I've done most of, I think. So I've just worked enough and worked hard enough to be someone that people might come to to say, hey, do you want to do this or can we talk to you about this glove puppet or, you know, it's just a. I think I've just been around for long enough to kind of get to that stage now, which is really amazing because... When I started, I wasn't that person, so it's just been time and just I just kept doing it. If you're asking me how to get a TV show up, I don't, are you just, there's a real process in terms of creating 
pitch documents and Bibles and episode outlines and, you know, there's a real process in terms of creating a world to be able to show someone that that's a thing that exists and that you've thought it through and you understand it and you've got ideas and here are the puppets and this is what it's going to look like and this is what it feels like and you can maybe shoot a pilot. If your ultimate goal, I guess, if we're just talking about television, if your ultimate goal is to get a show on TV, work backwards. Say, for example, with us, five years backwards, we did a live show and that took a year before that to start writing that live show. So over six years, we had a plan to get there. So maybe it's shooting sketches and putting them on YouTube or collaborating with different writers or collaborating with different creatives to make a world. Maybe you're, maybe you have a, a, a series of steps leading up to that ultimate goal. If that's your ultimate goal, work backwards, figure out how long it's going to take and then just do it unapologetically, enthusiastically, fearlessly until you get to where you want to end up. That's, wow. I think, the only way to do it, right? Um, yeah. Because otherwise you're just knocking on the door and going, I've got a thing, and people go, Ugh. <laughs> Also funding, chasing funding is really hard. So if you can, you know, if you can collaborate with people who can help you fund stuff or if you can get grants and things, that's awesome. But also I, I just think like low budget to start with, just make a thing and do it. Like fringe festivals, comedy festivals, do independent shows, shoot something, put it on the internet, just, just make content. When I say make content, I think you got to think it through as well. Like don't just shit stuff out. Like sure. try to make thoughtful content. And if you have a goal in mind, you'll make decisions that will lead you to that place. Also, just wing it and see what happens. There's that way as well. But I think that's more you stumble into luck that way, I think. And then as far as the puppetry community in Australia goes or the state of the puppetry industry, to me it seems like there's a whole lot of incredibly talented puppeteers of all ages still creating, still working. It's a hard time to, to quantify what's happening because the world is in the state that it's in. But I've worked with and been lucky enough to meet and continue to see puppetry from people in all different parts of the country in all different styles and it seems like there's a network and stuff like this podcast and Unima and, you know, other companies where people are communicating and collaborating and there is, that's the thing, if there's a community then you'll encourage each other to be better and if you can't see it, if you can't see it happening around you then you won't do it yourself. So, the more communication that happens within an industry to me the puppetry community and this is this is something that i think has been unique in my experience in all different industries from theater to film to television to comedy corporate stuff other organizations puppetry seems to be the most uh, in my experience the most welcoming and sharing like you know i will pass gigs on to other puppeteers i'll actively you know, grab another puppeteer and go, hey, I can't do this. Do you want to do this? There's 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 competition for big gigs, sure, but most people will. It's such a loving community from what I've experienced through the companies that I've been lucky enough to work with and the people I've been lucky enough to meet. And that if you can continue to think like that and harbour that kind of attitude, then, I, you know, I have great hope that it just will continue. And look to your elders you know, look at people like Richard Bradshaw or Philip Miller or people who just have this kind of very 
free attitude with the knowledge they have and yeah. caring attitude with the stuff that they create and they don't lose the playfulness. If you start taking it too seriously, you, you become a bit of a wanker, I think, from what I understand of puppetry because it's just wow. playing with dolls, right? We're playing with dolls. Yeah. I think so. you're so right about the, you know, I just, I've only been in, in puppetry and in among that community for only a few years. And it just, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. It just, it has not said no to me one single time. And so I am incredibly appreciative of that. And I think the fact that you reflect that, you know, years on after starting in puppetry is very promising. So you've been so generous with your advice and your time. I've got one final question for you, and that is who are your heroes in puppetry? And is there anyone that you would like to thank for back if you're looking at the career you've had? Well, Philip immediately comes to mind. He was, he's always been my Yoda in terms of puppetry because he's been there all the way through my career. I still go to him for advice and he's the first person that ever cast me in a job and referred me on to the next job and he's just been a beautiful friend and an amazing inspiration and also an incredible puppeteer. Like I know that he's, a, he, you know, he does a lot of making and <laughs> and he does a lot of, you know, creating and he's like, you know, he, he's, a, he's a nerd when it comes to making stuff. <laughs> But as an actual puppeteer, I've never laughed so hard, I don't think, ever working with another puppeteer. Maybe Kira Lyons is the other puppeteer that I've laughed really hard with because we did a lot of school touring. But that's who my heroes are, the people that I've actually been lucky enough to work with and watch Kira, Philip Miller, Sean Masterson, these people that are just like people that I've worked with on jobs, uh, Megan Cameron for sure. And then there's all, I, I have the same heroes as everybody else, Muppeteers, Frank and Jim and everybody. But as far as myself working with, I worked with a puppeteer called Don Austin on Me and My Monsters and he was amazing to watch as a UK puppeteer who's just had heaps of experience and he was in a suit. It was amazing to watch him. Gosh, yeah, just who I've just had fun with on the road over the years, I guess. Is that a good enough answer? There's that was two, a great the list answer. Is, the list is way too long. Oh, and Sue Giles. I have to give a shout-out to Sue Giles, yes. the artistic director of Polyglot, because without Sue, I mean, Sue got me through years and years of just learning how to tour and learning how to make a show from scratch and an amazing, amazing, beautiful organisation Polyglot is. And, yeah, working with Sue and getting to you know, create and learn on the fly. And then more recently people like Jess Knight and, you know, inspiring people who are making stuff. And now you, this podcast, you know, thank you. Oh, I look, don't know, this uh, is just going to go on. Richard Bradshaw, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. You know, like, <laughs> Let's just toss oh. out some names. No, no, no. Look, you've yeah. done a great job of answering that question. Um, and you've been so generous with your time, Heath. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been a real honour talking suck with you today. You can find Randy at Randy Feltface on Instagram and all over the internet. He needs no introduction or, or links. But thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk sock again soon. Thank you, Heath. Thanks, Pete. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials, and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at OneOrangeSock Productions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. 
you can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangetalk.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Sock. Talking Sock.